0: And as we have the kids going out, I, I almost got in my first fight when I was in fourth or fifth grade. <laughs> and I happened to be staying the night with my best friend, Jake Forrest. So many good memories with Jake Forrest. And staying the night on a Friday night with him, and this was my dream weekend, like hanging out with Jake at his house, staying the night was the best. But to make it even better, his parents took us to the Friday night football game at his school. And like all kiddos at that age, we're not there to watch the game, right? We're there to enact our own game of glory, right? We're finding our own patch of dirt somewhere that his parents will let us wander off to, and we're playing our own game. And Jake and I are on one team, and (laughs) there's this notorious bully of the fourth grade on the other team, right? About as notorious as a bully can be in fourth grade. And I don't exactly know what happened. If I had the ball or I did something... But at some point in time in the game, I am shoved over by this bully, and he is standing over me, ready for a fight. And I remember my anti-conflict 10-year-old self was not ready for this. And I I remember thinking, like, I can't get hurt. I have a soccer game the next day. Like, I can't do this. This is important. Like, am I about to get in my first fight? So just remember the fear and intimidation, the questions in that brief moment. But suddenly... The bully was no longer standing over me. Instead, my best friend, Jake, was right there reaching down a hand and helping me get up. As he saw this moment, he had run over and pushed the bully off of me and then helped me get up. not trying to advocate fighting in any way. Um, Actually, oddly enough, this moment somehow bonded Jake and this bully. So they became better and better and better friends as the years went on, oddly enough. But it is such a gift to have a close friend, especially in a moment of adversity or crisis. Such a gift to have a friend who has your back, whether you're fourth grade at a Friday night football game or as we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel, you have a king who's attempting to take your life. So the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. I encourage you to open up there if you have a Bible with you. We're going to be in chapters 18 through 20. And we've been looking at the rise of kingship in Israel. And now there's a shift that's taken place as a new young man named David has been anointed. And that creates all sorts of problems. I'm going to see how a key friendship helps him through a crisis. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 20. This story of an amazing friendship actually begins and is preceded by one of the greatest underdog stories ever. We looked last week at the story of David and how he faces this epic nine and a half foot bronze clad giant named Goliath. And he somehow gets the victory with just a stone and a sling. Or more accurately, we should say the Lord achieves victory through a young shepherd boy that puts his trust and confidence in him. And so the army of Israel stirred up. They pursue their enemy, the Philistines, and there's an incredible victory that God works. The one person we don't hear about in that story of David and Goliath is a young man named Jonathan. Now We hear about the king, Saul, and his fear, We hear about the army of Israel and all of their dismay, but we don't hear anything about the king's son, Jonathan, who had been full of boldness and eagerness and faith. What's Jonathan doing during that whole story? But now in chapter 18, he comes back in. And if anyone would have the right to be jealous and a little bit threatened, it would be Jonathan. He's the king's son. He's the heir to the throne, and then out of nowhere comes this young, giant, slaying shepherd boy who seems to be taking all the glory. But rather than being jealous in any way, we see Jonathan has a deep love for David, very bonded. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 18. It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. What a deep bond that he loved him as himself. Doesn't seem this was just a one way affection, but David also cared deeply for Jonathan. We see much later in 2 Samuel chapter 1, spoiler alert here, when Jonathan is killed, David grieves, and he says this in a song that he writes. This is David writing in 2 Samuel 1.26. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. It's an odd line for one man to write about another, right? expressing friendship, your love was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Because of these very honest expressions of affection, some in our culture today have seen more than friendship in this relationship. Some have wondered if there was a sexual relationship going on between David and Jonathan. But I think that actually says a lot more about our own world and our view of things than it does about David and Jonathan. For instance, there's a phenomenal book by a woman named Doris Kearns Goodwin. She wrote a book called Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln. It's a wonderful book. And in this story, she draws out the many great friendships that Abraham Lincoln had, and one in particular with a friend named Joshua Speed that he was a roommate with. And they even slept in the same bed. And we have all these letters between Lincoln and Joshua Speed. And they write immensely affectionate things towards one another. And Doris Kearns Goodwin comments that some have also wondered if there's a sexual relationship between Lincoln and this close friend Joshua Speed. But she says, actually, no, this was very common in that day for men to express deep affection towards one another in a friendship. Not at all odd even for them to sleep in the same bed. This was normal. It's actually the same way in some cultures still around the world today, not just back in previous centuries I remember I was on a trip to Jordan in the Middle East and it was pointed out to me by a Jordanian that men who are good friends will hold hands together as they walk down the street. It was very strange to see, but men would have open display of affection in their friendships, even holding hands. This is very odd to us as Westerners, not something we do at all, but was entirely normal in their culture. Just grab your friend's hand, we're walking down the street together. They want to display their care for one another. You can try that out if you want in your friendships this week, see how that goes. But a historian named Donald Yakovone he comments that our inference of a sexual relationship between Lincoln and Joshua Speed or we could also say between David and Jonathan, says far more about our infatuation and obsession with sex than it does anything about previous centuries and what may have gone on in these relationships. Does that make sense? So it says far more about our obsession with sex and reading that into relationships than it does about previous centuries and what may have gone on in those relationships. So there's a a deep bond between David and Jonathan, deep affection between the two. And we would be mistaken to read something sexual into that. We see what a deep bond David and Jonathan have together. It's not just mutual respect, but they, they seal this relationship with a covenant, with a covenant. Now, covenants, these promises, these binding ceremonies are very rare, nearly lost in our own culture. The only covenant we really have left is marriage, where two people in front of a group will promise themselves to one another. But back in this day, when it was far more tentative for countries and families and individuals, so many things that could go wrong, so tentative, one way of creating stability and security was to make these bonds of friendship and promise, to make covenants. With one another. And one of the common covenants of this day, a little gruesome, but they would sacrifice an animal, cut it in half, and put this, the animal on either side. And then the two people would walk through the pieces of that animal, and they would say, May I become like this animal if I break my promise to you? May I face death and be cut apart if I break my faithfulness to you so one way of sealing a friendship and making these covenant bonds to create more stability and friendship this is what david and jonathan are creating with one another we see even more though this is more and more in this friendship jonathan get this also gives david his robe and his tunic he gives him his sword and his bow and his belt and this is far more than just a coat drive helping David get some new clothing, right? This is massive and would have been shocking to anyone in the ancient Near East hearing or reading this story. Because they would have realized that in this moment, by giving David his clothing, Jonathan is giving him his rights and his position as the heir to the throne. This would have been shocking. How do we see this? Again, in this day, you didn't have a ton of changes of clothes. You didn't have a closet full of sweaters to pick from. You had maybe one or two changes of clothing. So you got used to people seeing them in the same outfit day after day after day. And it becomes a part of who they are as you see them. So you get suddenly the confusion if you see somebody wearing someone else's clothing. Like wait wait that doesn't fit you're suddenly in their place you've taken their position so it was a way of communicating they're in my place now i'm giving them my position and my rights so shockingly jonathan heir to the throne world in his hand gives this to david what humility He gives his rights and his position as the next king freely, willingly, out of love to David. That's the kind of bond. He is so much more eager for David in his flourishing and David in his kingdom than he is for his own. Makes me think about another moment when someone sees the rightful king coming. When their popularity was in full bloom, they let themselves diminish and someone else increase. Makes me think of John the Baptist, when Jesus comes. And even though he's popular and crowds are coming to him, and they ask John the Baptist, are you the next Messiah? He denies it. And he says this in Matthew 3, verse 11. He highlights, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. The lowest job, not even worthy for me to touch this person. John again says this in John chapter 3. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is John's delight. It makes me so happy to see this son of David, Jesus Christ, increase and more people to be in awe of him and let me recede into the background. That's John's love for Jesus. This connects to us, doesn't it? What is your heart's response to Jesus? Do you want to hold on to your rights and your privileges? You want to hold on to your position? hold on to our kingdom and maybe our name or do we see Jesus and we say, Lord, let you increase. May you increase Jesus and let me decrease. May you receive more and more glory from my life and may I diminish and be forgotten because this is all about you. I crave your name and I crave your fame. Let me be forgotten. How does your heart respond to Jesus? What do you say about him? So there's a beautiful connect between Jonathan and David, this humility where Jonathan is more eager for David's glory in his kingdom. But this deep love, it's not just Jonathan for David. We see that everybody, everybody loves David. There's such favor from God on David's life. We see that in whatever mission that Saul would send David on from here on out, David found immense success. So this all gave him a higher rank in the army. And rather than making people jealous, everybody in the army thought this was a brilliant idea because they loved David. So pleased with him. Seems everyone loves David, except for Saul. When David's coming back from this victory over Goliath, women come out and they begin to make this song up and sing it. David, rather Saul, has killed his thousands. But David his tens of thousands. It's a bit of an interesting worship song. I don't know how we could add that in here, but Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And as Saul hears the women singing this, he realizes he has the hearts of the people. What's left for him but receiving the kingdom? And so jealousy begins to take hold in Saul's heart. And hear me, out of this jealousy flows fear. And this fear leads Saul to try to take David's life. Not once or twice, but we're about to see Saul tries to take David's life seven times in just a chapter and a half. Seven times that he tries to take David's life because he's been full of fear. But every time God meets David with favor, so we see this cycle of fear from Saul and favor from God. And fear from Saul and favor from God. So let me run quickly through these seven attempts. First of all, while David is playing the lyre, Saul tries to spear him to the wall, but fails, and David flees. That's the first attempt. Secondly, Saul thinks, I'll promote him in the army so that maybe he'll get himself killed in a battle. But David just succeeds even more and finds more favor with the people. Third attempt, Saul tries to marry David off to his daughter. Strange way of killing someone, but he's trying to do this through the bride price, okay? So he's saying, I'll give you my daughter in marriage if you go kill 100 Philistines. But this too fails because David Doubles the price, kills 200 Philistines, showing what a warrior he is, and at the same time becomes part of Saul's family, is now royalty. What's more, Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David, right? Everything's just flowing in his favor. Fourth attempt Saul tells his son Jonathan and his attendants, go kill David. But he doesn't know Jonathan deeply loves David, right? Everybody does. So rather than going and killing him, Jonathan intervenes. For David opens up Saul's eyes and says why are you trying to kill David see all that he's done for us what an amazing servant he is to you why would you want to kill him so he changes Saul's mind and gets Saul to make a promise to not kill David but this doesn't last Saul goes back to plan a tries to kill David with a spear again that fails he runs home so we get to our sixth attempt Saul sends men to wait outside of David's home so that when he comes out in the morning, he'll be killed. But Michael, David's wife, helps him out of a window, and David flees to this great prophet named Samuel. Seventh attempt. Saul sends men to capture David and to kill him, but every time these men come to capture David, they're overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. So he sends platoon after platoon, but they're all overwhelmed until Saul himself comes and is overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and is humbled before David and before Samuel. Seven times Saul tries to take David's life. This kind of number is not accidental in Scripture, but has a meaning. That we're meant to see that the number seven stands for fullness or completeness. So we're meant to understand the full unraveling of Saul in jealousy and in fear. This full unraveling of his irrational fear towards David and the injustice injustice of how he is treating him. So we need to see again that this jealousy has prompted irrational fear in Saul. And that we are all afraid of losing, hear me, what we most love. We all live in fear of losing what we most love. And we see in this whole section that Saul is most afraid of losing his kingdom and his power. And that's what's driving him in such fear. He had God. He had his favor at one point in time. But that was not enough for Saul. Saul. Rather, he needed his own kingdom, he needed his own fame, he wanted people to like him, and so he lived for them. But now Saul lives in fear of losing that, and he can't let go. Isn't this like our hearts again? How quickly we come into jealousy because of someone else's gifts and ability. Maybe ours aren't good enough. We can live in jealousy of someone else's relationships or reputation that we might be forgotten. Somebody else's status or success that we feel so much less than they are. But hear me, jealousy cannot take root, cannot take root in a heart that is finding its satisfaction in God. It won't happen. If your heart is full and pleased and delighting in God, jealousy will not be able to take root in you. Envy can't take root in you. Think of David. David doesn't need all the military power and all the fame. He knows the Lord fights his battles. He doesn't need the kingship and all the power in that. He has the king already, the true king and Yahweh with him. He doesn't need songs from people praising his name. He gets his own quiet songs that he sings to God out in the pastures. This is David's delight. So again, a heart that is deeply satisfied in God is immune to jealousy and envy. What more can you give me if I already have the king? If I already have God with me in my inner being, what more could you add to me? That's my refuge and security. And God always fully gives himself to each one of us. I don't need to be jealous of any of you and your relationship with him. I have all of him and so do you. That's his kindness and generosity. But a heart that is set on ourselves will be riddled with fear and with jealousy. Because what we most love in ourselves, for ourselves, will be vulnerable, be threatened to be taken or overshadowed by somebody else. And we will do irrational things to protect ourselves and what we most care about. What is your heart after? What is your heart experiencing? Peace and delight in the Father? Envy, jealousy, or fear? Look at what you're most loving. Look at what you're most loving. After these seven attempts on his life, where do you think David would run? Where do you think David will go next? In this moment, he runs back to Jonathan, back to this deep friend and the bond that they have together. And David, he tries to tell Jonathan that Saul is still trying to take his life. But Jonathan is shocked by this because he still thinks Saul is back in this promise he made that he would never take David's life. He, he doesn't know about attempt five, six, and seven on David's life. So he thinks, there's no way my father's trying to take your life. But David explains to him, no, your father knows your great love for me. And he's not going to bring you in on this. He tells you about everything else, but he's not telling you about this because he knows your love towards me. So David and Jonathan, they put together a plan to reveal the real intent of Saul's heart. And they say that there's about to be a feast and David is going to be expected to be there as Saul's servant. But Jonathan will go and he'll make an excuse for David's absence. If Saul's okay that David's not at this feast, it probably means he's safe. But if Saul gets angry at David's absence, it really shows he's after him. He wants to kill him. He wants to know where he's at. So Jonathan goes to this feast and Saul notices David's absence and asks where he is. Jonathan gives an excuse, and Saul flares up in immense anger. And he says this to Jonathan, key, very key, in verse 31. Hear this. He says to Jonathan, As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And then in such anger, Saul tries to kill even his son Jonathan with a spear. And this finally opens Jonathan's eyes to the irrational fear his father is living in. And he's filled with anger. But this is the moment. This is the test. What will Jonathan do? (laughs) Will he go after his own kingdom? Will he preserve his own rights? Or will he tell David what's going on and protect him? Will he be a faithful friend? says the next day, Jonathan goes out to where David is hiding and through a secret message system they've come up with, he tells David the truth. He tells David, Saul is after your life, you must flee. And then he expresses this, brings it back to his covenant that he made with David and says this at the end of the chapter, go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord is witness between me and you and between your descendants and my descendants forever. It says both of them wept together, David the most. It's a deep parting because they realize their friendship will never be the same. What they had before is about to be stretched and challenged. It's interesting here as well that from this moment on, Jonathan recedes more and more into the background of the story, and David steps up more and more. That this choice of denying his kingdom really does set him back, and it becomes more and more about David. Now, I want to connect this to us in three ways, real briefly here at the end. Three things that we need to see from this story. First of all, we must choose our kingdom or Jesus' kingdom. All of us. We must choose our kingdom or Jesus' kingdom. When Saul said to Jonathan, "'Don't you know that as long as this son of Jesse is alive, "'neither you nor your kingdom will be established?' Saul was telling the truth, absolutely true. As long as David is there, as long as this new anointed one is around, Jonathan's kingdom will not happen. He has to make a choice do I want my own kingdom and my own power, or do I want to submit this to David? And it's the same for us as well that we all have to look at the ownership of our lives and say, do I want to pursue my own kingdom? Do I want to pursue my own way, my own preferences, or do I want to submit myself to the way of the true King Jesus? Do I want to follow after him? So we could say, I want to treat my finances the way I want to. I want to treat my relationships, my sexuality the way I want to. We can say, all of these things in my life, I want to have control over. My entertainment, what I want to do with my time, my retirement, you name it, we all have our kingdom that we want to pursue. But to be a Christian means we say, I give up my kingdom in my ways, and I submit myself to the King Jesus to follow him. But Lord, my life is yours. I have been bought with a price that I'm not my own anymore, but I want to follow you wholeheartedly and completely, God. So let your reign be expressed in my life, I submit to you. We must choose our kingdom or Jesus' kingdom. Secondly here, a friend is for adversity. A friend is for adversity. Isn't it amazing that when David flees again, he doesn't run to his family? We saw in an earlier week, David's got seven brothers, right? If anyone should have your back, one of those seven, right? You can run to them. But David doesn't. He runs to Jonathan, and the promise he has with him. It says this in Proverbs chapter seventeen, verse seventeen, I think captures their friendship. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. We are meant and created to have deep, meaningful friendships with one another. We are not meant to be alone and to do life alone. We're meant to share our lives with one another. Meant to lean on one another, to share one another's burdens, create memories together. This is what God has created us for. I'm afraid our modern culture has created far too much expectation for our romantic relationships to carry our relational burden. And hear me, marriage is a wonderful gift that God gives us. Yes, it's a beautiful thing, but God has also made us for friendships, to have these deep bonds with one another. So maybe you've got to look at your priorities, your schedules. Are you making time to develop these kinds of friendships? These are so massively important in our maturity and caring for the body for us as a church to be a thriving community of rich relationships where people are honest with what's happening in their life. Let me open up to you because I'm in a moment of adversity and I need a friend by my side. What kind of friends do you have in your life? Maybe what do you need to sacrifice and set aside so that you can make that more of a priority for you? A friend is for a time of adversity. Thirdly, to end on this, covenant, Covenant is our refuge. The real hero of this story, it's not David. I'd say it's not even Jonathan that's the hero of this story. I'd say that covenant is the hero of this story. That's why David comes to him. He knows they have this binding promise with one another. That's why he's such a refuge for him in this dark moment. But do you see that the same thing is ours in Jesus Christ? Do you know that God has made a promise, a covenant with you? That he's promised to be faithful to you and to I, even unto death. And get this, he's promised to be faithful to you and I. Not just if he's unfaithful, but if we're unfaithful. That no matter what, I will pave the way for us to be in relationship. Even if you run, even if you rebel, even if you make yourself unworthy, I will pave the way for you to be back with me. That's the kind of commitment we have from the Father. He says, no matter what, I will open this up for you. That's the promise he's made to us. And he didn't just say it. He kept that promise. And that's what we see Jesus hanging on a cross for. This is the faithfulness of God displayed. I will not back down. So great is my love for you. I will seek you out even when you've been unfaithful. I long for you to be with me. I long for you to know me. So let whatever cost come, even my own death, I will make you right with myself. This is the love and kindness of God for you. Do you realize what a friend you have in Jesus? Do you realize what a faithful God we have? That he's not just full of love, but on top of that, he's decided to make promises to us just so we could have more confidence. Look at the faithfulness of God towards you. I want to enter into more worship. I'm going to invite the band to come back up that we can keep singing. But I want you to hear this from Romans 8. This is a well-known, famous passage, but let this speak to you again. What God has done in stepping in for us in Jesus, that nothing is going to stand in his way that if he has given up his very own life for you and I, if he's given that, how will he not also give us all things? If he's been that generous to give his life and to die for us, why would he hold back his presence? Why would he hold back his grace from you? Paul writes this in verse 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no doubt we have obstacles. No doubt we have challenges currently in our life. But what refuge are you running to? What place are you hiding in? Do you see what a faithful Savior you have in Jesus? Let your heart find sustenance and strength in him. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Let come what may. You pray with me here this morning.